0: Welcome to the Financial Life Podcast with me, Ben Roble. This is episode 32. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to start a new concept. Every two weeks on Saturdays, we'll go through a book that is relevant to financial issues. Finance across the personal space, that is credit cards, investment management, banking, payment platforms, insurance, borrowing and lending, fintech, etc is a relatively well-discovered topic that is Repackaged over and over and over again in new paper, with a new box, and a new cover, and in a new voice. But rather than asking or expecting you to read every single one of these books, our goal will be to identify the common threads, the common knowledge, the ideas that everyone knows that everyone knows, running through all of these works. We'll also be able to identify the unique ideas, some good and some bad, and try to frame how they work in and apply to financial life in general and to your financial life specifically. Hopefully, this will help us cover a lot of ground while helping you determine what is most relevant to you and a book that articulates it in a way that is easiest for you to approach. That all being said, we're going to start this new programming with a foundational book in the personal finance space. It is also pretty short, only about 115 pages. The Richest Man in Babylon, written in 1926 by George Classen. So I suppose the best place to start this discussion is with the author himself. George Classen was born in Louisiana, Missouri in 1874 and died in Napa, California in 1957. He attended the University of Nebraska and served in the U.S. Army during the Spanish-American War. He eventually moved to Denver, Colorado, my hometown, where he started two companies, the Klassen Map Company, and the Klassen Publishing Company. The Klassen Map Company was the first to publish a road atlas of the United States. That is something many of us who have used a paper map will recognize. However, Klassen is best known for writing pamphlets about thrift and achieving financial success, which were distributed by banks and insurance companies. These pamphlets were parables set in ancient Babylon. That is, they are fictional stories written to illustrate a point. The Richest Man in Babylon is a compilation of George's pamphlets. Since its publication in 1926, it has sold more than 2 million copies and has been translated into 26 different languages. Like many authors in this space, George does not appear to have any formal training that would lead anyone to believe that he can credibly provide advice. His thoughts seem to rest on common sense, and his ideas are not complicated. I think it's always important to be wary of overcomplicated ideas, particularly in this arena, but also to acknowledge that there are really few credentials available in finance that are relevant for this domain. Most of the people who work in wealth management have gained their insights from their job, as I did. The only real requirements for them are regulatory exams, which have little to do with client issues and experience. There are programs like the Certified Financial Planner, CFP, that give people more training in forecasting and client-specific issues. But you will find few of the best-selling authors and television personalities come from that background. The people with the least amount of certification are almost always the least restrained. See Kramer, Jim. If you read this book, you will recognize most of its messages in any personal finance piece that has been written in the last 25 to 30 years. This is because some of these ideas are true and good even if they are hard to follow consistently. This doesn't make anyone who came after George unoriginal. When something works, there's no reason to replace it. He simply got there first. The Richest Man in Babylon is a series of stories where people who are wealthy give advice to their friends about how to achieve a similar level of success. This book focuses on gold, both because of its setting in ancient Babylon, but also because it was written in the 1920s, when the United States and, in fact the rest of the world still relied on the gold standard. Here's an example of the writing and its style. This very day, suggested Kobe, I did pass our old friend Arkad, riding in his golden chariot. This, I will say, he did not look over my humble head as many in his station might consider his right. Instead, he did wave his hand that all onlookers might see him pay greetings and bestow his smile of friendship upon Kobe, the musician. He is claimed to be the richest man in Babylon, Bansir mused. So rich, the king is said to seek his golden aid in affairs of the treasury, Kobe replied. So rich, Bansir interrupted, I fear if I should meet him in the darkness of the night, I should lay my hands upon his fat wallet. Nonsense, reproved Kobe. A man's wealth is not in the purse he carries. A fat purse quickly empties if there be no golden stream to refill it. Arkad has an income that constantly keeps his purse full, no matter how liberally he spends. Income, that is the thing, ejaculated Bansir. I wish an income that will keep flowing into my purse, whether I sit upon the wall or travel to far lands. Arkad must know how a man can make an income for himself. Now, even though this is not the primary message of the book, I think it is an interesting starting point. If you are interested in personal finance or your own financial life, then you are probably besieged from every side with ideas about passive income. Everyone seems to have a great new idea about how to achieve this today, despite the fact that the two primary methods, investing in the capital markets and investing in real estate, remain the two most effective ways to achieve it. The broader point that I take from this short section is the same one that I mentioned recently on Instagram and that corresponds to the four bucket framework we discussed in episodes 16 through 21 of this podcast. If you have a cash account or an emergency fund, which is bucket 1, where you hold money for day-to-day expenses and emergencies, it's not really part of your wealth. It isn't anybody else's yet, to be clear, but you have it in this account essentially because it is pledged to someone in the future. You just don't know who when or how much. That means that your wealth is really only buckets two and three, the money you have invested that creates more wealth for you and that you leave alone to compound on itself many times over. The most important message that this book does develop is to pay yourself first. In fact, George is credited with coining this phrase. Now, a lot of writers in this space, George included, focus on spending less than you make. But in this book, the implication is to spend less than at most 90% of what you make. That is, paying yourself 10% off the top. This is the beginning of George's answer to the question of how to prioritize spending, investing, and debt repayment. His view throughout this book is that investing in yourself is critical so that your money can work for you. This is also the basis for 401k programs and all the new apps today that siphon money from your bank account to save it on their platform. If you don't see the money, you can't spend it. This leads us to the next major point from the book, which is to make money work for you. Again, this is a popular idea that you hear a lot today. Essentially, this idea is to allocate some money to yourself and then to let it compound and grow without touching it. George offers some complementary ideas to this one, which include seeking wise counsel when investing and putting your money to work in investments with reasonable returns. Now, if your social media feeds are anything like mine, these ideas are good, but hard to sift out from all of the noise coming at us from people who all have new ideas on how to dramatically improve our passive income or increase our wealth. I'm not sure any of these people would qualify as wise counsel. So this is really the old standby concept of compounding, which requires time and also avoiding any serious losses. When your favorite football team is down by 20 points in the fourth quarter, They can't make it all up in one play, even if some of them try to do so. George and his Babylonian characters would advise similarly that making large and risky bets to try to massively grow your wealth quickly is usually a pathway to ruin. The exceptions prove the rule. Now, there are some other concepts in this book that are pretty well understood stay out of debt, save for retirement, and make your home a profitable investment. This last point is interesting because I think our relationship with housing has gotten more complicated over the last decade. We'll spend some time on that specific issue in the future, so we won't dig into it now. The rest of the book treads a bit into the self-help arena, extolling the value of hard work and learning as you get older. So in my view, parables, or collections of them like this, are not as effective a tool as they may appear to be. There are some other books out there written in this style that do work. I'm thinking about the Patrick Lencioni books about business as an example, because their goal is to provide a working example of a real-world experience. In this case, George's ideas are good, and they stand on their own, so there was really no reason to couch them within an ancient culture, unless somehow that helped his cause back in the 1920s. So my opinion is that this is a good book for young people who are not familiar with this topic, late teens to early 20s perhaps the same people who would find a fable valuable. These are young people who need to start to ground themselves in these concepts, but for anyone else, I think the points are straightforward and communicated more directly and effectively in other books. Thanks for listening. I hope this is helpful context for you and your financial life.